Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Bourne Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm drinking? Yak's milk. Not your father's fucking root beer. I don't like that. Oh. I tried it and... Uh, Did you drink it over ice? Yeah, I also tried it with vanilla... No, uh, no, you else. screwed it up. You got to just eat the bottle. <laughs> Well, that's what I did wrong, I guess. You know what I've you know what I've started wearing? Underwear? Oh, Andy. No. I've started wearing my sweats <laughs> and and a robe uh over over my sweats. And it's because it's because I saw my dad do it and and then they gave my parents as I was I was visiting them and they gave me the a robe that is incredibly soft. But uh, it comes from uh, 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 the wardrobe of a dead man. <laughs> Are you following this story, Andy? Okay, let me back up. There's a, there's a guy uh, that is a relative of uh, of a cousin of my father who passed away. Sadly, has many shoes, very expensive tastes in clothes. Happened to have a tan, sort of a taupe. A topi, incredibly soft robe. And I love this robe. And so I was visiting my parents and they said, Hey, need a robe? It belonged to this guy who's who is dead. And I said, I've I've never had the clothes of a of a dead person. And they said, You should try them. They're very soft. Clothes and, of dead people in general. And so I didn't clarify, and I only have this one example. And I can tell you. Uh, it is uh, empirically, it is very soft. And then I see my dad parade around in an equally soft robe over his sort of lounge clothes, his sweat clothes. And so he made me want to try it. And it's super comfortable. I've got this robe and this soft shirt and soft robe and my sweatpants. And it's uh, it's kind of a whole new me for podcasting right now. Did you want, do you want to hear it again? You know who you're becoming? Who? You're you're becoming Michael Keaton from Mr. <laughs> Mom. <laughs>
<laughs> You're going to start watching soap operas soon. You start start not not be- <laughs> You're going to lose track of time. Oh, was I supposed to pick up the kids? <laughs> You know, it was is when I started. It's when I got the glasses. We've talked about this before. I got the glasses, and suddenly, when I put the glasses on at night, I'm kind of. I just need to really relax. Is it? Is it like your superhero costume? A little, a little bit, a little bit. It is. Yeah. Do you have any news? <laughs> I nothing that could top that. <laughs> should we? Should we tell the people where we're from? Where are we from? Next reel on Rashpixel.fm, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there's Andy Nelson. Hey, howdy, hey! And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, uh, this is the first of our second uh, series on the films of 1939, and we're going to be talking about George Cukor's The Women. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show on iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you've ever had it come over you to take the news of the salon and get a story printed in the rags for all to see and judge, all to see and judge, I tell you, then you're the kind of gal that's ripe for The Next Reel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag GuessTheMovieChallenge. And with that, since Stephen Smart is right in the middle of yet another Technicolor fashion show extravaganza throwing peanuts at the monkeys even though the sign says don't feed the animals I'll fill everybody in just like a modern head of hopper. This week's movie was 1953's Pick Up on South Street, directed by Samuel Fuller and starring Richard Widmark, Gene Peters and Thelma Ritter. Congratulations to At Fegfi for his fourth win of the year. You're entered once again to win the 2016 Pony Prize. As always, a new contest starts on Monday. We have some follow-up uh, from the good uh, Ben Lott with the Blot Spot. Yes, uh, that's right. Uh, following up on his very own uh, Listener's Choice episode, Ben wrote, I'm glad you guys ended up enjoying one of my favorites. Naturally, since I have such a strong emotional attachment to it, I ranked it much higher than you. Your rank 139, my rank 6. But I think lo- it, was a, it was a little kind of caught by that uh, O Brother block. The, the O Brother block. That's right. Uh, you know, sometimes I worry uh, that the O Brother block is uh, in the way of some of our ranking. And then nights like this come along and I think, whew, thank God we have that O Brother block. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Andy, I think it's time. Let's do some trailers. So I have a super, uh, super cheery one for us to talk about, Pete. Oh, God. <laughs> I saw this actually last week, and I thought, I wonder when Andy's going to bring the whole ship down. (laughs) Tonight's the night. (laughs) The ship's already sinking, Pete. Why not make it sink faster? (laughs) No, in all seriousness, I actually think this looks really good. Um, Derek C. in France, um, who we actually were in school with. Uh, Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I was in film school with Derek, and, uh, and this is his next film. After uh, several really interesting films that have caught a lot of uh, people's attention, The Light Between Oceans is his latest one uh, based on a book, and it looks really, uh, really heartbreaking. (laughs) There's nothing right about it. It's about uh, uh, Michael Fassbender and Alicia uh, Vikander. 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 Really? I knew I was going to botch it, and she just won an Oscar and everything, and I still can't say her name. Anyway. They are apparently, uh, I don't know if they're hermits or what, but they live alone on an island. 
And uh, one day a boat appears and it's got a baby in it. And they say, hey, let's adopt this little baby. Free baby. (laughs) Free baby coming in off the coast. And they make the baby their own. And uh, years later, they uh, are hanging out in town and they meet a woman who uh, happens to have lost her husband and daughter at sea. And the daughter is uh, just the right age to, to be the same age as their daughter. Lo and behold, they realize, oh, this is her daughter, not ours. And and then it's the decision of, do we keep it? Do we give it to her? Who's the rightful parent now? Blah, blah, blah. And it just is uh, all set to rip your heart out. And uh, <laughs> I think it looks great. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it does. It looks really, it looks like it's going to just kind of beat you up. Uh, Rachel Weiss is in it, and like I said, uh, Fassbender and Vikander. And, uh, you know, it is going to be hard to watch, but I am quite excited about it. Uh, what do you think? What, is it, what does it mean to be quite excited about a movie that's going to rip your heart out? I'm never excited about that. I know I'm going to enjoy them on some level, but excitement is not the word. Well, I, I guess excited is, you know, I enjoy emotional roller coasters. I enjoy films that that play with my emotions depending on or whichever direction it goes. And this looks like it's going to be a tough one to to go through. But I'm excited about having my emotions fiddled with. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> no, you, you win. You win this one, Andy. I, uh, I ch- didn't choose this uh, trailer for a reason, uh, mostly because I knew you would do it. Uh, but it, it's got, uh, you know, it, it's got Alicia Vikander and Rachel Weisz right in the same film and i love these ladies i think they're fantastic uh michael fassbender you know i just watched him again just last night in uh days of future past uh and i find myself really he's a pretty magnetic guy even in that in that stupid (laughs) steve jobs stupid stupid movie he was great did you call him magnetic in (laughs) days of future Past? did i i didn't say that unintentionally did i did i just say magnetic you you said that yes God, I am on fire. I don't even need to think. I just put it in neutral and coast, and it just just fireworks. Fireworks, Andy. You're a magic man. <laughs> oh, that fast bender. So I really like all these people. I am. I am constantly. Uh, it just I, this is one of those movies that's going to hurt to watch. It will, I'm sure, be beautiful and heart wrenching. Uh, I have not read the book, the M.L. Stedman book that uh, on which it is based. Uh, I probably won't. But uh, I'm sure many people uh, say that it comes with some critical acclaim. Uh, probably. probably uh, but it, it is gorgeous. That. I mean, it's just, it looks beautiful and deeply, deeply moving. Yes, it does. It really does. I, I am, like I said, I'm looking forward to uh, having my uh, my uh, emotions be thoroughly uh, uh, destroyed. You know who Thro- you know thrown- who would like this. Thrown by the ocean onto the rocky shore. Yes. You know who would like this movie? Your um, young children. You should take them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Family movie night, kids. The boat. <laughs> <laughs> Honey, free baby. Didn't I tell you how we got you? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Can I talk oh. about my trailer now? Oh, wait. You well, got to tell mine, us when does yours come it, out? It comes out September 2nd. So uh, be ready to start September with some tears, everybody. Oh, dear. Mm-hmm. 
Well, okay, my turn. And I'm, I'm kind of in a hurry because mine, uh, is, it, mine launches on March 13th, if you're in Austin. It launches, Andy, at the South by Southwest Film Festival. Uh, and so hurry, if you're going to see it, get your tickets and get down there. This is, of course, you know what I'm talking about, The oh, Trust, yeah. crime thriller starring Nicolas Cage, Elijah Wood, and Jerry Lewis. It's even that Jerry Lewis. I guess uh, this is uh, this, I, I don't know what sort of I, I had a whole other trailer in mind and then this just came up. It was a front page of IMDb. This first trailer just came up with the trust. And I thought I it's Nick Cage. I make constant fun of this guy and and Frodo. Of course, I'm going to check this out. Of course I am. And you know what? It looks really weird and funny. These two cops, they are, uh, you know, they're just doing their jobs in a in a corrupt world, Andy, and they're investigating a drug invasion in a grocery store, and they find a bank vault. And that is where our story uh, ends up getting uh, interesting. It's got great music. I love the music of the trailer, the whole vibe. The second half of the trailer is, I, the first half I was kind of thinking, ah, meh. The second half, I was having a great time. Once it became a caper trailer, I was sold. Comes from Alex Brewer and Benjamin Brewer. Uh, you know, I'm going to call them the Brothers Brewer, but they may be cousins. They, I don't know. Maybe it's just a coincidence. Uh, don't know anything about them other than they have not done a whole lot. This looks like their first uh, uh, big film. They've done some shorts. Um, and uh, it was written by Benjamin Brewer and Adam Hirsch, also not known for a whole lot beyond uh, some shorts. I have seen nothing of them, uh, I, but I think this looks like a—if if this is any indication of where they have come from, these guys are in for a funny career. That's what I'm saying. You know what I thought when I watched this trailer? I heard you laughing because I listened to it. <laughs> so you, it can't be negative. I was actually uh, quite surprised that um, I, I it kept showing things that it seemed like it was going in directions I wasn't expecting. And so, right. like, you know what? I, I'm going to really give this one a chance because it uh, really piqued my curiosity. Uh, these guys made me laugh. It seemed like a great pairing to have these two together. And, uh, yeah, I will I will see it. This, was, that is, this pairing is maybe the last pairing I would imagine with Nicolas Cage. Is Frodo. He looks. He, he actually totally pulls it off. I think uh, he does. It, it takes a it's certain. Great. It takes a certain kind of character actor to match Nicolas Cage in this kind of movie. But this is the kind of movie that Nicolas Cage is made for. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I am. Uh, I'm a fan. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it looks great. Again, uh, opens narrow, narrow, narrow as in Austin, Texas. Release March thirteenth, two thousand sixteen. Uh, that's coming right up this weekend. Well, here's hoping it'll get picked up there. And that's right. That's get right. Get a better release. Yeah. Somebody distribute this thing, please. Please. There you have it. Go. Andy, give me a bromide and put some gin in it. Take a good grip on yourself. You're going to die. Stephen Haynes is stepping out on Mary. But Sylvia, who told you? A manicure is... What girl? This Crystal Allen. Crystal Allen? Yes, you know, the girl who's hooked Mr. Haynes. Hey, what happened to the hot date you had on for tonight, darling? It's hotter than ever, dear. I'm having him dine at my place. About time he found out I was a homegirl. Homegirl? <laughs> Get her. Why don't you borrow the quintuplets for the evening? Because I'm all the baby he wants, pet. Andy, the women. 
1939, comedy drama is what they call it. Uh, from director George Cukor, writers Claire Booth Luce. Is that what you would say? Luce? Luce? Based as she wrote the play? She wrote the play. Luce? Lucy? Luce? Lu- I think it's, I, I assumed it, it was Luce, and was the other one is Luce also. Yeah, and then the screenplay is by Anita Luce and Jane Murphan, uh, with uncredited additions from F. Scott Fitzgerald and David Donald Ogden Stewart. Stars Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, Rosalind Russell, Mary Boland, Paulette Goddard, Phyllis Pova, Joan Good. Fontaine, Virginia Wheedler, as Little Mary, uh, this, uh, and, and many more. This is a film, uh, a, a cast of all women. Um, and it and marks, when you say all women, it really is all women. Yeah, it is a cast full hundred, of... More than 130 females Yes, speaking in this film. Not to mention the animals were all female. <laughs> and and every photo that you see, it's only females in the photos. Except for George Cukor. And nobody picked up on that, that maybe they should let a woman direct. Maybe. Maybe. But 1939. 1939. What are you going to do? All right. So the premise of the women, uh, this is what I thought. I thought it's sex in the city with no men, more women, and even less interesting story. Does that pick does that pick it up pretty well? Uh, and yeah. you know, I know I'm going to be hard on it, but I, I will tell you there are some interesting things in this film. Um, I think that the second half of the film, uh, and we'll talk about the break point, is actually much more interesting to me than the first half of the film, uh, which I think is drivel. Uh, the second half of the film offers us a glimpse at some incredibly interesting political and uh, legal and gender uh, history uh, that I think is definitely worth talking about. Uh, the, the way the film kind of portrays it is, is fluffy, and I, I, it was tough to watch. I, didn't, I, I actually slacked you a number of times. Does this film actually end, or is it just <laughs> a loop of nonsense like this all the way through? So um, anyhow... What did you what did you think of it? Was I alone? No. No, you were not <laughs> alone, Pete. No, you were not alone. You know, it's funny. Uh Luce, uh, and when I say Luce, I mean uh Anita Luce, not Claire Booth Luce. Uh, Anita Luce screenwriter. Um, she actually I, I guess claimed that it's always been men who find the women offensive. And wow. you know, I I, I almost take offense at that comment. Because, I do too. And, and I, you know, granted, she said that sometime in her lifetime, which was not in recent times. Right. Um, I, I'd, I'd like to think that that things have changed a little bit. And I, you know, I just found the story here. Um, like I really looked at this. Like, okay, what was it that made people interested in this story back in the '30s? What oh, was I'm it? I'm delighted that, to hear that, what you uncovered. Well, I'm not sure if I uncovered much, but (laughs) I really struggled because I'm like, okay, there's got to be something that that had made this play so popular that it played 666 times. (laughs) (laughs) They were proud of it, which they were so proud of. They actually put in the credits here. Um, I I I just struggled trying to connect with it. I I really had a hard time with um, with opinions and advice that was given. Um, there were some elements that I liked. There were, were some bits of dialogue and some confrontations that I liked uh, quite a bit. Um, but on the whole, I really had a hard time with this. I, I found it to be 
um, just a just a very dated film. And even looking at it uh, through those glasses, saying, "Okay, I'm going to put my 1939 glasses on and watch this as if I am watching it back then," I still just you know have a difficult time really finding it a, a film that I find much worth in. The uh, the premise of the story, really, I mean, I I joke about the Sex and the City thing, and that I. You know, for whatever that's worth, the 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 uh, the premise of the film is that, that it's a um, it, it's a survey of the lives uh, and and romances of this group of connected women, uh, this network of women in uh, it, the incredibly wealthy part of New York, an incredibly wealthy area of New York, right? And uh, the our main character um, is uh, played by Norma Shear. She's uh, Mrs. Stephen Haynes, Mary uh, Mary Haynes, and and she's sort of our protagonist of this thing. Even though we follow a number of women and their relationships, they all tend to revolve around Mary Haynes, and and this is all set. Uh, in motion, the whole story is set in motion when we discover that uh, Mary Haynes' husband, Stephen Haynes, is having an affair with the perfume lady uh, at a local uh, high-end fashion store. Uh, that is Crystal Allen, played by Joan Crawford. And the thing that really rubs me the wrong way about this movie, uh, and this I know is a reaction that is that that is marked by the datedness of the film is that it it doesn't make any of the women look good, right? It it really demeans and diminishes every one of the women in this film. There is not a strong woman of integrity uh, among them. Even Mary Haynes, who gives up at the end, and I find the ending an absolute. A absolute disappointment. We can talk about that in a bit. But do, what do you think of the of that conceit that this makes women look bad? Oh, I completely agree. I it, this makes women. It, it just. It. I mean, again, this is from 1939, and I, I, I there are elements. I, I think it's almost a little uh, schizophrenic because there are elements that I think are actually pretty strong for women. I like that Mary views her relationship with her husband as one where they are kind of equals, where she can go fishing and catch fish uh, sometimes even better than her husband. There are, uh, she's she's fine horseback riding. Like she's, she seems to be kind of on par with with being, uh, being right in there in the action and doing whatever it is and not just sitting idly by. I love that you said schizophrenic because she has a great relationship with her daughter in the beginning of the movie. She's a strong sort of role model figure and then is not. Right, exactly. And that's and that's it. It's like it goes from these things where it's like women doing strong things and being strong to, um, you know, I mean, her mother, the wise old owl, giving her advice of, oh, you know, these men, they, they just need these things because they don't know how to... Uh, to change things in their life, and the only thing that they they think they can change is is having another woman on the side. And I was just like, "This is the advice your mother gives you, and that it's okay, and just to kind of go along with and, it." Yeah, don't talk about it. Don't ta- don't confront him about it. Keep it a right. secret, just like I did with your father. Right. It's like, wow, this is horrible. And I was glad to see again that she's just like. Are you nuts? This is there's no way I'm going to do this. And I was like, okay, well, this is interesting. She's not going to take her mother's advice, and then she didn't, and she ends up getting divorced and going through the whole proceeding. 
And then it it all crumbles because it, it's like they, they set some interesting character elements up for her and some of the other women. And then it all crumbles because in the end, she's like, she says that she has to swallow her pride because what is the line? I wrote it down because it made me so mad. Um, <laughs> her mother, her mother's like, Mary Haynes, haven't you any pride? Pride? Not at all. Or, or no pride at all. That's a luxury a woman in love can't afford. Uh, it's like good she has to she basically has to forego you know the the strength that she has found as a woman who can do her own thing and forego it because she's not been able to get past the loss of her husband and even and and now she knows that her husband is miserable with this this other woman that he cheated um cheated with um when she when he was uh, with Mary, and uh, and he wants out of that relationship, and and so Mary willingly accepts him back and basically forgives him, and it's almost like saying, yeah, he can do whatever he want, and and you know, sure you can leave him or whatever, but hey, you know, if you swallow your pride, you can get him back and just suck it up like nothing's wrong. Because I'm a woman in love. Oh man, it just uh, that really bothered me. It's just like and and like you said, it's like what sort of example is she setting for young Mary? She's not setting any good example. I mean, it's it's a terrible example to set. You know, you know what's it's, actually it's, interesting you bring up, Young Mary, and I think I may have spoken too soon. Young Mary is about the only character in the film that has any sort of spine. Uh, and, and I find that ironic. It's Young Mary who ends up kind of sort of speaking truthfully and authentically to her mother about what she's heard. It's Young Mary who stands up to this awful Crystal Allen, Joan Crawford's character, uh, in the in the bathtub, which is a very strange scene. Uh, but it it is uh, it's Young Mary who actually has the sort of integrity that you want these you want at least some character in the film some adult protagonist level character to display uh as a role model for children none of them have it uh and uh it, it is young mary who ends up being the being the character that you can sort of latch on to only briefly yeah you're right i i don't find i don't find the women offensive at all certainly not for the reason i feel like she is implying i'm gonna really be stuck on that this yeah. loose comment no, it's strange. It's strange. You know, and uh, something else about the writing of this, and I, I think the film sets it up in a way that um, I thought was was interesting and kind of fun, but also incredibly dismissive of all the characters, that when it, it starts the film, and, and I can say, okay, one reason that they do this, where they, as they introduce each actress playing one of the characters, they show an animal. So you get... Uh, oh, here's here's uh, um, uh, Norma Shearer playing Mary. She's the deer, right? Yeah. And then you get uh, then you get Joan Crawford playing Crystal, and she's the leopard. Mm-hmm. And you know Sylvia is the black cat. Flora is the monkey. Miriam is the fox. Peggy is the sheep. There's owl. Oh, cow, Edith uh, is the, the cow. The horse. Yeah. Right. It's. It's just, it's just, it's silly. So I found this, uh, this quote in this review of the film on this, uh, the website, uh, this blog, A Crowded Bookshelf. It's telling that the movie opens with the credits. Each star is given an animal that she represents. Some of the characterizations are kind, but others not so much. There are some cliches, including cats, tigers, and child star Virginia Wheedler as a lovely fawn. Rosalind Russell and Joan Crawford, the film's two villains, are represented by a hissing cat and a panther, respectively. What the viewer immediately is clued into is what kind of personality each character possesses. 
possesses. It's a funny bit, but not necessarily because the writing is clear and the characters are drawn so unequivocally that you'll immediately understand which woman you are meant to root for, who are you meant to scorn, and who you are meant to loathe. The writers, while witty, aren't exactly subtle, nor are they interested in complex, difficult characterizations. And I think that sums it up pretty well. It's just, you know, these, these are very... Uh, just kind of sketches of of these women characters. And sure, they have some fun lines and stuff, but for the most part, I just, I didn't find any of them that interesting to, uh, to you know, follow. And I kept referring to my page because I wrote down what all the animals were. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, she's the sheep. Sure, I can yeah. see that. <laughs> that. That's the problem I had with it, is that I knew from the moment they started this, they open up the credits with this, this the, the animal parallelism, right? The symbolism. It is wearing that symbolism so heavily on its sleeve, this film, that you, that you realize the film probably doesn't have anything of merit on its own to say. In these characters, if they're gonna, if they're going to just hit us over the head with the symbols of what these, I mean, these classical symbol, animal symbols, uh, what they mean, and align them so heavily to these to these women, they're they're going to do disservice to the actual characters. That's that's what I felt, and maybe that that helped me sort of prejudge the film in maybe a negative way. You know, maybe I should have watched it without watching the credits, but it it really put a bad taste in my mouth at the very beginning. And, you know, this is it was one of those things where I went kind of like tried going back to the 30s and going, okay, maybe for the audiences there, they really can already connect with most of those actresses. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the stable of of all the top MGM actresses at the time. It's like, you know, all the big ones are in there. You know, okay, so I'm like, okay, so it's kind of cute. It's kind of fun. I can see kind of why they would do something like that. It's just a it's just a fun way to kind of give us this this broad sense of these actresses, especially because there are so many of them. And, and having little, uh, you know, shortcut like that might be something that could help. So I was like, okay, I can kind of, I can give it that. But at the same time, like I, I read from that bit, it just leaves it so broad that it just seems like they didn't try that hard. Uh, let's talk about George, can we? Um, before we do, one more thing in the script that I think just just keeps oh. us from really identifying well with, yes. with these type of women. This may be is, it. Yeah, I mean, we have this, this Technicolor fashion show in the middle with some completely outrageous uh, fashions by uh, the designer Adrian. And, uh, I, you know, I think it speaks to the world of fashion that it doesn't seem that it's changed that much in my eyes, <laughs> that that fashion show fashion is usually interesting to look at, but you would never, ever see anyone wearing any of them. What was the deal with the woman wearing the dress with like the spikes coming out of the back of her hand, that giant post uh, of I'm jewels? Sure. I mean, there there is some ridiculous stuff in here. Some crazy, crazy. And, and there was ridiculous outfits even when they weren't at the fashion show. I liked the uh, the outfit that Sylvia is wearing uh, early on in the film where she's got like eyeballs all over her shirt. <laughs> Very strange. But the thing I was going to say is that after the fashion show, when they're all kind of you know going on and trying on clothes and everything, we have this uh, this model walking around in this nightgown, and Mary looks at it. And it's like, oh, how is how much is it? And she's she's like, oh, it's two hundred dollars. This is a two hundred dollar nightgown in nineteen thirty nine. In today's dollars, that is basically a thirty three hundred dollar nightgown. I, who are these women? <laughs> it's like this. You said Sex in the City earlier, and I think that is it. I mean, these are women who just don't have a sense of reality and are living 
in kind of this this fantasy world where they they spend thirty three hundred dollars on a nightgown that uh, will hardly see the light of day, just maybe their husband's eyes, and that's it. It's 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 a different sort of mentality, and maybe the film is trying to kind of comment on that type of woman, but it doesn't seem to in my eyes. No, it it really doesn't. It certainly doesn't make a very good case, uh, whatever it's trying to do. Um, but but again, moving to to George. Yeah. Now, is it ironic that this film, in my eyes, holds up only? only marginally better than gone with the wind does it's funny um because yeah he he had started on gone with the wind and then he was removed because it just they didn't feel he was quite the guy to do it and he ended up uh, getting uh, this film instead and sure they say he's an actor's director he's a woman's director it seems like okay this might have been the film for him and i mean i will say there's a lot of uh, great uh, women in here, and I think there are some some good performances in here. I think that for what the script is, I think he handled it well, and I think that he um, there are some nice confrontations between some of the women that I really like. I mean, I do feel that he caught some some good bits here. It's just I really just don't like the film. Well, I I think he caught some okay confrontations. I think in general my opinion of these of of the large majority of the film is that it is way too many voices on screen at once, uh talking over one another at once. This is a film that I think technically the audio uh was not able to keep up with the vision of what they wanted to do. I think maybe they could have come up with a film like this, uh, you know, with so many voices today talking over one another and still allow us to really hear and figure out what what we should be focusing on on some of these big screaming matches. Uh, I, I had a, a really hard time uh, just placing what he wanted me to do. It was chaos. And then some, this is partnered with some of the most incredibly boring sequences of dialogue of of much more intimate dialogue uh that i've seen this this sequence when the two uh servants are talking in the kitchen about what the maid has has been eavesdropping on the uh the main couple uh the uh, uh the Haynes couple as they are are having a fight upstairs about their divorce we have just this two shot of these two women sitting at a table it looks like i mean it's it's about as proscenium as you get uh of of just these ladies talking about what is what happened just a few minutes before it is incredibly boring uh and uh, not at all illustrative of any of the character traits of the main characters that we want to see. And it goes on forever. Uh, I mean, just talk about putting your focus in just the wrong place. Well, and I have a hard time deciding if that's Cucor's problem or if that's a problem from the play or the screenplay. Um, it certainly feels like an appendix from the play. It, it does. And I think, I, I mean, that's kind of I, I my, my biggest problem with that is it feels completely like a a, uh, a a side effect of this idea of let's tell a script with only women and we have to do the whole thing from women 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 we can't ever show a guy and by making that choice what happens is you have a very important scene which is the scene where Mary is fighting with Stephen about this affair that he's having and saying, we're going to get divorced. It's, I mean, that's, that's a key 
emotional core scene for a character and for us to really connect with her and to to be a part of that scene. And for us to have to see the entire thing through the two maids as they gossip about it because the only way they could write it is uh, without showing Stephen is by having it told by this perspective of these two maids. That is a terrible, terrible screenwriting choice. It, it's a, a problem that is because of this way they wanted to tell the story. And I fault them all for being a part of that and saying, this is how we have to do it. I think it was probably a smarter idea for when they did the remake in the 50s, uh, the musical version of this, The Opposite Sex, uh, where they actually included the men. I think that was probably a smarter way to tell a story like this. I can't say if it's actually any better. It's probably not. And I probably won't ever watch it. Um, but, <laughs> but, well, and wasn't but, it remade as a film again in 2008, right? This oh, was sure, the Diane yeah. English film. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't seen that this one either. One, I, uh, I, I heard it was even worse than this. As did I. Meg Ryan, Annette Benning, and Eva Mendez. And yeah, oh my goodness. Uh, it was, it was another. It, yeah, it, this one also actually uh, stayed true, I believe, to the no women or, or no men on screen until the end. I think they show the male baby, um, but uh, but that's it, it's the same thing. So I uh, I agree with you. I think it's I, I couldn't help but really latch on to the Bechdel test while watching this film. How <laughs> ironic is it that and I recognize the Bechdel test is you know a modern invention, but how ironic is it that we have an entire film with hundreds of women all named and the only thing they ever talk about is men. This is a yeah. whole movie that fail I mean talk about missed opportunity. Oh yeah. It's I and I mean it's it's marketed that way, you know the the poster and everything says you know and it's all about men, <laughs> as yeah. if they needed to find a way to draw men into the uh, to the crowd to watch the watch the movie. I don't know. I I feel like it was just a fail on all parts, and uh, you know I, I don't know. I just I think that what people liked at the time was probably that they felt there were some some strong women and some strong women confrontations um in retrospect i just don't think that you can say that i really don't think you can uh, final comments on george kukor are we done with him uh, the only other thing I was going to say about him, which I thought was pretty interesting, is that later in life, he really apparently did not like the fashion show sequence and uh, didn't want it to be a part of it anymore. I guess that sequence actually was removed from many screenings for a long time, and it wasn't until, gosh, I think in the last you know, 15, 20 years or so when uh, Turner Classic Movies actually reinstated it into the film, and that's how it's been shown since. But there was a very long period of time where that fashion show sequence was actually excised, which I thought was, you know, I mean, I, I didn't care for it. Um, I thought it was interesting that they actually removed it. And they also shot a black and white version of it as well, which they included in, I guess, some theaters where they couldn't show color. I I really didn't understand well, why they had that other version. You know, we should talk a, a little bit about what it is and what it marks, because I don't think we've done that. I mean, it, it, it right. is really jarring in the film that halfway through, or about 50 minutes in, I think, the movie, which is all black and white, stops, and the all the ladies go to this fashion event, and then the movie changes to color, and then it becomes this sort of stage play of a, a fashion show that's like eight minutes long with no dialogue. Oh, I, I thought it was ten. Ten I it minutes. Was longer, yeah. Oh goodness! Well, it felt like thirty. 
uh, <laughs> in color, and it shows the most bizarre high fashion just in and out and off stage, on stage. Uh, and, and of course, it doesn't hold up very well by by sort of production standards. If you're used to looking at sort of the New York fashion scene, that that you feel like it's it's very 1939. It, um, but it is. Um, it, it changes the entire perception of of the film and into this color modern beautiful uh, vibrant thing and then the life gets sucked out of it again and you're back into black and white i found it such a strange choice to shoot this in color uh, to shoot the film in black and white, if you're going to put this jarring thing in color, it really makes me sort of realize, I mean, I, I certainly understand why Gukor would hate it uh, later in life. It seems like just a really strange decision, and it it, it didn't fit for me uh, structurally uh, in the way that I would have expected to, like, take a break from the film, sort of like an intermission uh, as a chapter break, Um it, it it is much more jarring than that. It doesn't let you sort of reset because after we we fall right into more drama uh, of the ladies actually as they start going through the clothes. So I, I couldn't figure out why they why they did it. I couldn't make a case for it. Um, I don't know. It just didn't make any sense. I mean, I I could see why they did it. It's you know it was probably a way for women of the time, people of the time, uh, to while they're watching the movie to see some. It's like to go to a New York fashion show, and I think a lot of a lot of audiences never had that opportunity. It's not like they all had Project Runway on their TVs all the time. I mean, they didn't have that opportunity. And to go to a movie theater and actually get to see a fashion show, I can see kind of why they would do it at that time, where people would, you know, you know, they get to pay their their whatever it was and they get to see this. Okay, now, that's an that is an interesting perspective. But Andy, ten minutes. Oh no no no! I'm not saying I'm Andy. Not come saying, on, man. I, I, I agree. You. <laughs> You are insane. <laughs> you are making the case. So you think it's a it's a cultural win, right? You think it's a cultural win that they included this for the for ladies of the time in um, you know East Podunk it's, who never had a chance to go to New York to actually see a fashion show. Uh, yeah, I think it actually it's it's weird. I think again, it ends up being schizophrenic because I think it serves two purposes. I think it. Uh, is a chance for people who have never gotten to see a fashion show to actually go kind of sit in, in on one and just see all these crazy fashions for 10 minutes because they are kind of crazy, as I have already said. Um, on the other hand, it's not that far after the Great Depression. And I think the other flip side of that is that it could be some weird way to kind of show audiences, uh, you know, kind of this this sickening side of society and how crazy uh, these these women are that are spending $200 in 1939 dollars on these nightgowns and probably more on some of these most just completely outlandish outfits. So it could be working on both levels, although I just don't think I'm getting any of that other level. I think that's me reading into it. I, I, just, I, yeah. I, don't, you know. I think you're giving it much too much credit for being culturally subversive. <laughs> I think I am. I'm just wanting it to be more, Pete. I just really do. <laughs> you know, I want it to be more, Andy, because I want 1939 to have represented something bigger than than what I have discovered so far, given how much people, ta- you know, trotted out as the best year of film in history. I am not seeing that. Not with this film, certainly. Certainly not. All right. So uh, we've talked a little bit about uh, Adrian, the costumes. Uh, mm-hmm. Shall we talk a little bit more about the pr- rest of the production, cinematography, production design? Let's, uh, yes. Let's do that. Cinematography by Oliver T. Marsh and Joseph Rutenberg. 
Uh, now, we've already talked about some of the things I've been super disappointed in the film in terms of just how they portray some of these appendices from the stage play. Uh, I will say that in particular, and I found myself thinking this out loud, I was thinking out loud, huh, nice shot. Uh, there is a scene where we have Norma Shear after the, um, uh, as she's walking out of the little waiting room after the fashion show, and there is a really long walk directly toward the camera uh, as she is she's walking in uh, and going to her dressing room. And I thought, that's really interesting. Another sequence, the opening sequence, the camera work and the editing in particular, as we are walking in and out uh, through the rooms of the uh, of the spa, was fantastic and really kinetic and, and uh, I thought really energetic. I mean, I agree with you there. I, I I had no problem with the way the camera work was done. I actually thought that, it, considering the type of film it was, a very talky, um, gossipy sort of film with just a lot of women, I thought that the camera moves were nice. And I actually did like some of the, the, the framing. I didn't have the problem that you did with Cukor as far as um, the the way that the, the scripting was, as far as how the audio and everything. I, I felt I found that I followed it pretty well. And uh, I also liked the way that he and uh, the cinematographers um, actually framed the shots. I liked the kind of the groupings of the women. And I, I kind of, I don't know, it just seemed to work for me the way that they they framed everything. I mean, it wasn't anything too fancy, but I thought it worked. Uh, I thought it worked fine. Yeah, I, I think they actually ended up, some of those sequences, they ended up portraying just the physical movement of the women in the spa, I thought, was just really funny. I mean, that that was the the part of the comedy that that really struck out for me, or, or uh, stuck for me, I should say. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that's the piece that leaves kind of a lasting impression, is just watching these women in 1939 try to exercise. Uh, and be pushed around by their <laughs> by their coach, you know, uh, and uh, getting getting their facials and all of this stuff. I mean, that's a real uh, that that's sort of an iconic bit of history uh, that that I found super amusing. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Um, no, I, I I think that uh, I think that they uh, did a good job. And you know, I will say, I've never been a huge fan of kind of the uh, the soft close ups that they would do in the. Uh, you know, this period, the 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, when you're showing kind of a close-up of your female protagonist, um, you know, you kind of get that Vaseline on the lens type of look. That's a really soft, lovey focus sort oh, of look. This whole um, film. It, it definitely feels that way. Um, and as much as I didn't care for the last shot and kind of the way that, that what, what it represented and everything, I was like, you know, okay, it actually works in context of what they're doing for the film. <laughs> In that shot, I, I didn't, I didn't care for the moment, but I was like, you know what? It actually works here, though. So, I'll give them that, even All though right. I didn't like it. You want to talk about <laughs> Cedric Gibbons? Art direction uh, by Cedric Gibbons. Um, you, we talked just now about kind of the spa that opens this film, and as much as it looks like a set, like as soon as as soon as they walk in, and you've got the all the stuff with the dogs and all that stuff, and we got our little butterfly McQueen uh, moment and everything. I, it it looks like a set, but I really liked the set. I was like, this is kind of a, a exactly what kind of a, an over the top ridiculous spa w- should look like. You know, it's yes. just like way too gaudy, way too much. Um, Cedric Gibbons, I, I think, did did a great job here with the design, both here the 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 Reno Divorce Ranch, kind of all of this. 
But the thing that I really found interesting about Cedric Gibbons is that um, just kind of the history of this this fella, um, not only is Cedric Gib- Gibbons credited as the guy who designed the Oscar, he ended up getting um, 38 Oscar nominations for Best Art Design and won 11 of those. He was a guy who um, apparently had a contract with MGM where um, every film that MGM released, and I, I, I'm sure it was just a period of time while he was there, um, every film had to have him in the credits <laughs> as the art director. <laughs> so he's credited with like 1,500 films <laughs> that oh he worked on. Oh my goodness. His IMDb page is bananas. It's nuts. It's just insane that this was kind of this. I, I, I it boggles the mind that How somebody does... could come up with a contract like this. It says he actually only worked on, like, hands on, physically working on about 150 films, which is still a lot of films. But uh, it's just you know he's credited with like a ridiculous amount, and it's great that he's like the guy who's you know designed the Oscar and everything, but. <laughs> It's like there's this weird bit of film history with this guy. It cracks me up. How does one get that kind of contract? I don't know. I don't know. That is unreal. It is a really strange contract to get. I mean, he has he's just like an insane amount of of uh, uh, credits, and it makes me wonder. It's like how how do you tell which are the ones that he actually worked on and which are the ones that he just had a credit on because yeah. of his contract. I mean, do we have reason to believe that he is? Uh, he actually did this film? He did like 40 films in 1938. Oh, I know. It's crazy. No, I, it, from what I read, he did actually work on this film. Okay. that's. Crazy. But then he was also working on The Wizard of Oz this year. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think... <laughs> He did wow. get an Oscar nomination for that one, so I, I assume if he's getting an Oscar nomination that he actually worked on it, but I don't even know if I can say that. Like, I don't know how that works. Wow. Isn't that weird? Yeah, that is really crazy. Yeah. Mm, so that's Cedric me Gibbons. some of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you want to talk a little bit about some of the cast members that stick out to you? You know, I mean, there's there, uh, I, I like the pack of women. I mean, Norma Shearer, I think, works well as Mary. I think... There are issues that I have with um, the character. Um, I don't know if I have issues with her so much. I mean, maybe she might be a little, um, I don't know, a little, what's the word? I, I want to say um, uh, just kind of easy as far as, I mean, as far as her character arc, which I guess she's the one who kind of has is she kind of grows and then kind of regresses over the course of the film <laughs> she's her character arc is a circle <laughs> right it's not an arc it's a full this circle. is but but you know i agree with you and and that was my my perspective in terms of her portrayal of this character she was the most likable of the lot um she was by design uh, really yeah by design i mean she had to be she had she was the only uh one of the group that actually sort of stood out uh, with with the exception, I think, of uh, Florence Nash as Nancy Blake, who who I think she was the the other sort of subdued kind of stoic of the group that I thought was was kind of interesting to watch. Uh, but but in terms of, of I, 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 who was who was that? Because I couldn't for the life of me short, remember. She was the short writer who had. She, I've been with the tribe of of headhunters in New Guinea or whatever her line was at the end. She's she was the one who who she was a writer at the end. Well, she's in it several times. 
oh, throughout I the film. Her for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, so I, I think that there are, in terms of, of people who just sort of stand out, uh, you know, I thought Norma Shearer was great. She was the most likable. She was the one that I, I sort of found myself uh, having a natural affinity to, I think, in, in that respect. I, I totally agree with you. I really dislike the, the way this character was written, but the way the character was portrayed, and I think you know, I, I think you could say the same for many of the characters in the film. Um, I, I, I did enjoy their performances of these terrible characters. The one thing I will say, I mean, she has several scenes that I actually enjoyed quite a bit. Um, one was the scene where she talks to her daughter about divorce. Um, now, again, I kind of, <laughs> I, I kind of have to go back to saying this is this this is the thirties, nineteen thirty nine, yeah, this yeah. is nineteen thirty nine. But you know, as a child of divorced parents and having been a child, having uh, my mother have this conversation with me. I actually really appreciated that this was in a film in 1939. I'm like, you know, this is I, I this is a tough conversation for any parent to have to have. Yes, and I really enjoyed the way that she did that. I I enjoyed uh, Virginia's kind of reaction to it. It did feel very much like you know child acting in the 30s. Mm-hmm. But that being said, I still appreciated it, and I I appreciated her trying to be tough for her mother and the way that she kind of walks out and she's kind of she's got that quivering lip I, I really enjoyed the way that they did the scene um i also enjoyed um norma's performance several times when she's like on the phone and she's she's really trying to keep it in and you know she's she's great with kind of holding that the wet spot in her eye without yes. letting the tears roll out she does that really well here yes we see it like every time she's on the phone pretty much but uh yeah no she's she's a good she does definitely uh, delivers good phone She's yes, like, she uh, what's his name uh, does good phone? Bob Newhart. She does Bob Newhart level phone. Or I should say, <laughs> Bob Newhart delivers Norma Shear level phone. <laughs> wow, there you go. There you go. Uh, and I agree with you that uh, to talk just a little bit more about Virginia Wielder, her, uh, her performance as she goes into the next room. Yes. Mommy, I have to go wash my hands. She's totally holding it together. And I thought, if this were a movie made, like, I- imagine this movie made <laughs> today... Uh, doing that thing. I mean, she would have gone into the room and and like really done some. She would have done some damage or somehow got you know done something really horrific. And in this movie, she just grabs the wall and starts saying, "Oh, mommy dearest. Oh, daddy darling." She kept saying, <laughs> "Daddy darling." Oh, how quaint! The thirties. It was. Were. It was really quaint. It's, yeah. <laughs> just awful. Um, but 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 I like what they did because that to me felt like the way that that. Uh, you know, a child who has been trained how to act. I mean, not, and when I say act, I don't mean act as in perform, but I mean, this is how in proper society, this is how a woman behaves. And this is how a little girl who is learning how a woman behaves um, would try to behave. And I, I actually felt that it worked pretty well for me. I, I agree with you. I actually, I actually agree. <laughs> Surprise, but I do. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, Joan Crawford was uh, appropriately despicable. Yes, and uh, I guess that she and Norma Shearer, actually, uh, there was some real tension between the two of them, and I thought that was interesting that they uh, chose to cast these two uh, to play these roles. So that was, uh, I thought that was kind of an interesting bit of casting here. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Joan Crawford is uh, an actress I haven't seen a whole lot. I feel like the only other thing I've seen her in is is, um, uh, uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane. (laughs) (laughs) So I've got kind of a... An interesting spectrum for her. Wow, that's not that's not great. <laughs> I know. I, oh man. 
I'll have to do some more. You uh, should catch up Joe on some Crawford. Joan Crawfords. <laughs> I know. I really need to. Wow. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I thought she was. Uh, I thought she was perfectly. Uh, uh, she was perfectly hateful in this film. It and uh, absolutely resented. Uh, you know her her role in this little um, cohort. Um, and she she was she was really sociopathic. You know. I mean, she just didn't. She totally missing the the any sort of moral cues. Um, that that were put out. I think several of the characters you may have been able to categorize as, as you know sociopathic, but in in her case, she really was pretty textbook, uh, and I think that made her interesting to watch. Um, and actually, I should say, in terms of how that character was written, that's the one that I don't have a problem with for for sort of nineteen forty nineteen thirty nine portrayal of of diabolical woman. No, she yeah, was, she's great. She was bad, and she was great being bad. And it's a character; it's a villain. I mean, it was a good; it was a good sort of social villain. Uh, so, she's, um, yeah. There, there's something about the kind of the wickedness that she has, and I, I like how she's not. I mean, there's something about that uh, antagonistic character where she shows no shame about it either. And when when Mary actually confronts her um, after the fashion show, uh, Crystal. Is like yeah, whatever. Well, I'm going to keep doing it. So tough. Yeah. And you know, yeah. And, and I, I, I mean, that was actually another scene that I actually really liked the dialogue in because I thought it was two strong women confronting each other about this common man between the two of them, and how Mary was trying to stay on the side of right, and Crystal's just like, screw it, I, yeah. you know, whatever. And I love that line as uh, as she kind of is finishing up, and she's, you know. Um, I can't remember what Mary says, something about, um, you know, uh, buying clothes that uh, Stephen will like, or don't buy that one because Stephen won't like it. And Crystal's just like, oh, don't worry. Anything that Stephen doesn't like, I just take it off. (laughs) (laughs) It's just awful. That was like, I was like, okay, this is a great, uh, just a really fun catty line. And I liked that. And it also reflected, I thought, well, the, the way that they were playing around getting around the production code. Right, right. Um, there, so do you, were there any other of the, the women that you specifically want to call out besides uh, Norma Shearer, John Crawford, Virginia Wilder? Um, I I loved Rosalind Russell. I thought she was great as Sylvia. Mm -hmm. She has, she, um, you know, in like, uh, My Girl Friday, stuff like that. She really has that, uh, that fast patter down. And I, I think she does a great job here of being that character. Yeah. I, I found her, um, just pretty annoying. Well, Right. I mean, I right, we were supposed, I, I was supposed to. to. I know, but I she was tough to watch. I, I think not not because it was she wasn't portraying this character that well, but mostly because the film was overlong by you know half, and I, I think I was just exhausted of her by the end. Uh, I could say the same thing of Mary Boland, uh, Boland's character, who was uh, played the Countess de la Vey, um, that that I found just uh, woof. Tough to watch. Paulette Goddard, though, how I, I could have uh, I could have watched her all day. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, it's it's one of these strange films that again it, it has this schizophrenic air because Miriam is having an affair with Sylvia's husband, right? And Mary, who was cut deep by her husband having this affair um, with Crystal doesn't seem to have a problem hanging out with Miriam. It's it's like, yes. you know, you're doing to me or you're doing to Sylvia what Crystal did to me, but we can be friends and there's no problem there. Yeah. And it's it's just there's a weird sensibility there of of 
they they dismiss things so well. Like nobody seems to have this the same problem with Miriam that they do with Crystal, and I found that weird, really weird. Even though Sylvia, well, Sylvia and, does at the end. Yeah, they well, have a fight on the ranch. Yeah, right. They have that fantastic cat fight, but it doesn't seem to. Nobody seems to care no, that much about it. Stick, yeah. Yeah, it's very weird. I think it's good. Maybe I mean they all kind of write it off like, oh well, Sylvia's husband. They don't like each other anyway, or whatever. But it's like right. Well, and again, some of it is is just me, uh, you know, writing. Uh, I, I don't know. You, I feel like I can't give it as much credit as I'm about to. But part of it is that it's a statement of the uh, the uh, the social class that none of these fights really matter. None of these relationships are really substantive at all. And uh, in the end, you're just watching fleeting. Uh, moments that that just they they're just going to disappear. They're going to be gone. It'll all be forgotten. Everything that you have just seen, like the character arc being a circle, everything you've just seen for the last two hours and thirteen minutes, is is it never happened. We're yeah. going to start from zero again. And and if that's the case, let's just say we're being super gracious, and that's the case, then that makes it even less of a reason for the film to have been made. Like I. I that's, it is empty calories to, for me. So it, it kind of reminds me of The Great Gatsby when you have um, Nick, when he comes back into the house later and he sees Daisy and it's like everything is repeating itself and you've got, you know, the curtains are blowing the same way. And I, I mean, I can't remember exactly how it plays out, but it's like nothing is changing in their lives. It's like this same cycle that they keep going through. And that's exactly kind of what this film seems like. It's like, this is just this the same cycle that these people will perpetually be going through. And, you know, she kind of comes back to her husband and they reunite at the end and then they'll make the women too. And it's all, uh, it's about Peggy and her relationship with her husband and and now she's going through this this gossipy divorce and we get to see the whole thing and it's just like and everything kind of comes full circle and they all end up back where they were and it's just this is the society that they live in yeah it's yeah it's it doesn't make it great it doesn't make it great yeah not at all but it's it's almost like that's kind of where they leave us when we get to the end right isn't it isn't it interesting though that you would bring up the great gatsby talking about this movie and f F. scott fitzgerald actually did rewrites on the script i know it's interesting it is i wonder i wonder if he was uh thinking of any of his characters as he was doing rewrites on this i i don't know um it is it but it, it feels like one of those things like if we're going to because it, you know so much of the great gatsby is about this it's this story of the american dream like what what are we achieving out of the american dream and 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 this period from um you know from the early 20s to 1950 with the sort of the death of a salesman like this period was all about exploring um you know love loss and economy <laughs> around the American dream and this great transformation. And in so many ways, like uh, the women is representative of the absolute worst, right? The excess that that came out of, um, you know, for this class of society that that came out of this post-depression. And, and this, this film is an exploration of all that was not good and all the greed that comes out of us as human organisms in all the very worst ways. Yeah. That's what's offensive about this stinking thing. Yeah. What else? What's uh, next? Well, it was nice seeing Joan Fontaine pop up, even if uh, her character was really ho hum. Didn't yeah. care about her at all, or her divorce and you know getting back together. It's like right. uh, another one. Mrs. Moorhead, the owl. I you know, <laughs> I wrote down. I'll listen to owl's advice in poo over hers any day. <laughs> That's pretty much what I thought about her. Yeah. If it doesn't end in gahool, I don't want any. <laughs> 
but that was, uh, you know, uh, I mean, the cast, I mean, yeah, yeah, they had some some strong performances um, by some of the, the ladies at the time. And uh, yeah, but, you know, the script was what it was and it uh, it made it for a tough watch. Uh, how did it do? How did it perform? How the world well, did it take the world by storm? It's interesting, you know, considering the year 1939 that everybody talks about, and this is one of the films that people talk about in 1930, uh, in those great films, um, which it, to me, it just strikes me as uh, strange. But this film did, didn't receive any Oscar nominations. It was uh, kind of left uh, left out in the cold, interestingly. Um, it did get remade several times. As we already said, there was the, the musical comedy in the 50s called The Opposite Sex. Uh, apparently, uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder remade it as a TV show in Germany in 1977 called Women in New York, and then Diane English's remake in 2008. That was a big bomb. And interestingly, and you know, thanks to Eddie Mannix, who we've uh, talked about on the show a number of times now, um, most recently in the Hail Caesar episode, um, who, you know, he tracks, he had his ledger and he would kind of track all the finances from all the movies at the time uh, for MGM, which I just, I really love. But uh, this film, it looked like it had made a little bit of money. This film in 1939 dollars cost about uh, $1.688 million, which is about just over $28 million in today's dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of the print and advertising budget, which is about 844000 or about 14000 in today's dollars, this film ended up losing money in 1939. Wow. Which I thought was uh, interesting, considering how great it was supposed to be. It ended up making... About two point two million, which is about thirty eight million adjusted. So all told, it ended up losing about thirty three thousand dollars per finished minute in adjusted dollars. Wow. Yeah. All right. Now I feel a little guilty about the last hour and ten minutes. I don't. I feel vindicated. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not to pile on, but wow. Well, I I think it was uh, that is. I hate to say it. Those are sort of some deserved losses. Yeah. I mean, you know, sorry, Anita Luce, but, uh, you know. <laughs> this is a film didn't... that, and, and I would say now it makes me sort of want to go read the play, but not really, um, because I, I'm so curious how how the play, uh, you know, portrays these relationships and portrays these characters. Uh, it, there has to be some sort of redemptive piece to it, and I, I because I certainly didn't see it in the film. Um, we should probably rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. Uh, sign up for your account, and this is going to be the one you want to start with. You want to start with the women, 1939, at, because, you know, you can only go up from here. <laughs> All right, the first film, we've got our O Brother block. The women are O Brother. Oh Brother. Oh Brother, indeed. The women, or Taxi Driver. Taxi driver, taxi Andy. Taxi driver. I am so glad to hear you say taxi driver. Oh, <laughs> uh, the women or Escape from New York. Escape from New York, Andrew. Escape from New York. The women or The Blob. 1958, Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen. Totally going with The Blob here. The women ain't got nothing over that blob. <laughs> Let me tell you. All right. We've got The Women or Pritzi's Honor. Yeesh, that wasn't good. It was. It, it wasn't bad. I'm still going. I'm going with it. I mean, I'm picking it. There were some great scenes between uh, Jack and Kathleen. Yeah. 
uh, Princey's honor for me. Yeah, Princey's honor. Yeah. The women. Now we're getting down to it. The women or scoop. Scoop. <laughs> oh, that was so bad. That was really bad. Andy, I, scoop I don't or recall. the women sitting next next to each other. It's the only thing you can watch. Is scoop or the women? You're telling me. You're you're not even going to pay attention to either one of them. You're going to put on the women. I'm going to put on scoop. You're okay. right. All right. <laughs> I was torn because there were like three scenes that I enjoyed in the women. I don't recall a single scene I liked in scoop. But then I remembered I'd have to sit through a ten minute fashion <laughs> show again. <laughs> I'll take Woody Allen terrible movie anyway. Yep. But uh, all right, the women. Or Under the Cherry Moon, Pete. Under the Cherry Moon, Andy. And I know you're going to say the same thing. <laughs> I'm going to say the women, and I really am sorry that I'm saying it, but... We're, do- we're doing it. We're going in the we're, mat. We're going to do it. Pleasure. All right. Uh-huh. All right. One, One two, two, three. three paper. paper. <laughs> One, One, two, three. three the scissors. women. <laughs> <laughs> That's me giving that to you, Pete. <laughs> Oh, Andy, at the very bottom, dare I say, <laughs> you are so gracious. <laughs> May your we life didn't... serve as a role model for others. I didn't want your guilty pleasure to be on the bottom forever. <laughs> there is only one movie that really deserves to be on the bottom, Andy, and you know you've already broken that. Oh, uh, the, the women? <laughs> <laughs> now it's the women, right? It is the women. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Wow. 1939. What kind of year is this? You know, I was hoping we would do these 1939 series and just find just gem after gem after gem. And thus far, I mean, there have been some good movies. um, And, you know, there have been, there's a great movie in there, I think. But for the most part, it's like, gosh, what is it about 1939? I I hope we get to the bottom of this with our next four films. I do too. And you know, I I have to bring up some historical context here because there was something we totally forgot to talk about, which was these divorce ranches. Oh, yes. Right? How did we forget that? This was the most interesting part of the research about this film, and it has nothing to do with the film, apart from the fact that they set the second half of the film there. These divorce ranches. Had you ever heard of anything like this? No, they have totally different ranches in uh, in Nevada now. Oh, it was good, Andy. <laughs> that was good comedy. It's all changed. This there is this period from 1930s to the, to the early 60s where uh, Reno, Nevada, had the most liberal divorce uh, uh, rules uh, in the nation. Uh, and so, it, as it as it happened in other states, other cities, you you'd have to have a really specific case to get a divorce. And, and you know, one example here I found is uh, in New York, you could only get a divorce if if one spouse could prove that the other spouse had been adulterous. You'd have to have pictures, you'd have to have witnesses, and, and even with the evidence, you'd have to wait a full year before filing a divorce and eventually being granted one. So it was really hard to get a divorce. Nevada in Reno had had nine grounds where you could get a divorce. Impotency, adultery, desertion, conviction of a felony, habitual drunkenness, neglect to provide the common necessities of life, insanity, living apart for three years, and extreme cruelty entirely mental in nature and required no proof at all. Uh, and that is, that's the state of divorce in Nevada. The only trick is you'd have to live there, uh, for six weeks. 
right? You'd have to have six weeks residency there, uh, according to a 1931 bill that was designed to spur the Nevada economy uh, in the Depression. I think this is fantastic. So these Jeez. ranches popped up where men and women, but they were they were pretty gender-specific, where men and women would go and they would live for six weeks on these ranches and just go crazy. It's like uh, Rumspringer for the for the Pennsylvania Dutch kids. It's like, it's just going crazy. They would just go and they would have affairs with ranch hands and they would drink and they would debauch. And it was just, that was the thing that they would do where wealthy people would go and just go crazy in Reno for six weeks while waiting for their divorce to clear. And then they'd have a big celebration on their last night and then they'd go back to their real life. And that was the setting of this, the second half of this film is all these ladies end up, and that's part of the comedy of the second half of this film is all these ladies show up at this ranch and, and they're all, it's like dominoes fall. They're all getting divorces. Like they were all part of the society and now they're all cowboys and they're wearing these terrible Western outfits uh, and, uh, you know, just sort of parading around making a big show of themselves. And, and, uh, and so uh, I, I just, thought it was hysterical that this had happened. According to this book, uh, The Divorce Seekers, a photo memoir of Nevada dude wrangler, uh, and in this case, the dudes are not just men, but women too. Anybody who comes from out of town uh, to work a ranch is, is called a dude. Um, they say uh, mental cruelty uh, with the most popular charge being it, it could cover a wide variety of complaints, even something like, quote, she talks to me when I'm trying to read or, quote, he interrupts me while I'm trying to write. That could be grounds for divorce in Reno. Jeez. Right? This is uh, that is fantastic history. I knew nothing about that history and I think it is uh, that is it, that is the gift of this movie that I got to learn about these Reno uh, <laughs> these Reno depression era divorce ranches. And Brilliant. what a gift it was. What a gift. Uh, so so with that gift, uh, what did it leave for your uh, star rating over on letterbox.com/thenextreel? Oh. <laughs> Well, segue, uh, it, it left me a big fat, uh, I don't know, what's the lowest we can go? Zero. Yeah, no, it's a Actually, zero. Well, it's you a can't really half star, it. half star, I'm, star. I, I'm at a half star because, like I said, there are a few scenes I like. Yeah. And uh, a, a few bits of dialogue and um, that bit of history really uh, is fascinating. So half star just for divorce <laughs> Half facts. star for divorce ranches. <laughs> I will take that. Oh, good. All right. Well, where do we go from here, Andy? Please, for the love of Pete, tell me we do something better after this. I I hope so. I guess we'll find out. We are going to be uh, skipping on over to the Old West, actually, over here in Arizona, in Monument Valley. We're going to be joining John Ford on his stagecoach. John Ford. John Ford's got to bring us something. I hope so. I'm rolling the dice on you, John. Come on. I've seen this one uh, in film school. Um, I have very vague recollections of it, and I'm curious to rewatch it and uh, see what I think this time. All right. Let's do it. Before then, though, I got to go to bed. All right. I'm going to go try getting rid of these Reno Jumpy Wumps. So I've got a five star by Jose. There are a you know, lot we, we of five bat- stars. <laughs> a lot of people love this movie. Wow. 85% five stars over on Amazon. Oh, goodness. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of people who love this movie. And so considering the, the, uh, I don't want to say vitriol, but considering the uh, the negative comments that we had to say about it, I figured it was worth reading a five star just to see what people had to say. I agree. And with this you. is this is Jose from 1999 watching it on VHS, who says one of the greatest and still most underrated Hollywood comedies about the lives, lies, and tricks of a few high society quote friends. Cucor is superb in its direction. He looks so comfortable directing only women. I don't recall seeing Cucor in the film. <laughs> that this is one of his gayest films. Not even man appeared as an extra. The women fold the screen with wonderful gowns, hilarious dialogue, and catty fights. Norma Shearer in her heartbreaking specialty. She knows how to learn us the immensity of the problem if Joan Crawford steals your man. Joan Fontaine is lovely, and Paulette Goddard, and especially Rosalind Russell, our beloved Roz, are incredibly funny. Joan is terrific as well and Chris as Crystal Allen. She's at her best when she proclaims there's names for you ladies, but it doesn't it's, it doesn't get used in high society outside of a kennel. <laughs> okay, that was a good line. Yeah, that was a good line. I liked that line. A nice little uh, production code line. Yeah. Well, um, needless to say, I disagree. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and I also disagree with Rex Maxfield, who also watched this film on VHS tape in 2002 with his review, five stars. Yes, what a cat fight. I've loved this film for years, perhaps more every time I see it. This was the classroom for those dynasty broads. It is sure one of the best examples of ensemble performance. The first inkling I ever had of this film was in, in the 1970 question mark Los Angeles Film Exposition's tribute to Rosalind Russell. They showed clips from about 15 of her films, and what they showed from the women was the exercise scene. After that, I was on a mission to see the film. Pre-video. But Roz isn't the only star shining. They all do, even the bit players. So what do they want you to do? Lay an egg? That's a quote from the film. The script by Anita Luce and Jane Murphan, adapted from the Claire Booth's play, is extraordinarily wonderful. What dialogue. If you haven't had an appreciation for Norma Shearer before, well, you certainly will after seeing this film. And Joan Crawford, Crystal Allen, maybe the woman we'll all like to hate best forever. Oddly, there was no Academy Award nomination for any aspect of this film. Huh. Perhaps there was an anti-George Cukor movement abroad in 1939. He was fired from Gone with the Wind, remember? Not even Adrian's costumes. Just get a load of what he put on Roz. If you've never seen the women, shame on you. Mm. Wow. Uh, I I do think it's puzzling that, uh, uh, that there was no Academy Award nomination for any aspect of the film. We should really... Not waste any time thinking about that. Hashtag Oscar so white. Had this film been released this year, it would have swept. <laughs> They'd all get nominated. They'd all get nominated. Thanks, Amazon. <laughs>